I'm John Tarleton, your guest, uh, your host here on the Independent News Hour, and uh, we now turn to our third segment. Uh, we're going we're going to be joined by Brandon West. Uh, Brandon is uh, a member of the DSA for the city uh, slate that is is six candidates running for city council this year, uh, and he's running in Brooklyn's 39th district. Uh, Brandon was previously previously worked. Uh, at city council as a staffer and really saw sort of how the machinery of government works. And this, uh, this spring he was in the streets with so many other people uh, helping lead uh, black lives matter protests that uh, urged and demanded that city council uh, start really dramatically reducing funding for the New York police department. Of course, uh, those demands were rejected by the current city council, but there are now 36 open seats that will be up for grabs in the upcoming city elections in 2021 and uh so a lot there's a lot of uh uh, potential here for for transformative change to come to city council depending how those elections go brandon thank you for joining us on the independent news hour tonight on wbai thank you no i really appreciate it i love you guys you bet uh so before we we talk about uh defund the police and some of your ideas around that uh, can you say a little bit more about yourself and, and your background that uh, you bring, especially from having previously worked at the city council? Yeah, totally. So I, my background, I guess, all started, my I, my career has been more in voting rights organizing. So I work in the Center for Popular Democracy. So what I do is essentially help black and brown grassroots groups build around democracy issues. You know, and I often say that like, uh, Flint, Michigan is a democracy issue. I think it's a very broad understanding of how to build power for folks. Um, but I had a stint working in government. So it was post-recession, and I ended up um, at Office of Management and Budget for uh, a few years um, and saw the budget from the inside and then spent a little bit of time at City Council Finance. Um, so I kind of had a little bit of experience doing advocacy work, which is like kind of my, my core interest, and then doing like budget work. And then, you know, uh, I guess when I was doing the bureaucratic side of things, I needed like an outlet. So I started doing a lot more organizing outside. So that kind of was starting to do more within DSA, uh, the central Brooklyn branch, and then um, doing more anti-machine work. And that kind of created this larger picture of like how machine, like the machine works and how government's opaque and how all the important decisions people don't have access to are at the table. And that kind of like built this understanding that as I kind of got more and more radicalized by seeing how things don't work, that I like decided to like, you know what, I'm going to jump into electoral politics and, you know, try and change this. So that's sort of like my, my arc in terms of how I got involved. Right. And, and you're running as a, a part of a, a six person uh, slate uh, with the democratic socialists of America chapter here in New York. And of course there's dozens of other uh, progressive and left-wing candidates also running for city council with these 36 uh, vacant seats out of the 51 seats on city council. And of course the uh, mayor's uh, seat is also open this year. Uh, if you and other socialists and leftists uh, make it to city council and, and have a substantial caucus on that city council that will take office on January 1, 2022, how would you uh, go about starting to de- defund the police and, and, build an, and building an alternative to policing here in New York City? Totally. So there's like a couple tools that city council has, but like they have to be like incredibly specific about how to get these things accomplished. So the big part is there's, um, there's a couple different things. There's like three, in terms of defunding the police, I think there's three avenues. There's 
the um, hearing model. So because, you know, council, you help pick the speaker, but then you also get uh, the speaker chooses who gets uh, runs which committees. So, you know, when you run a committee, you can, you know, especially if you have a committee that has like a community safety organization and like uh, corrections or NRPD, you can like do hearings on whatever you want to do hearing on and then try and build policy around that. So is using that as a bully pulpit Two, which I think is the biggest one is the budgeting process um, because city council uh, works with the mayor, with speaker and the mayor's office in terms of like deciding what's in the budget. And you can sort of like try to build the alternative to policing by like figuring out what programs you want to fund and, and also take money out of things that we don't want to spend it on in order to do that. And I think that's the, the biggest tool. And then the other tool, which is a little trickier, is like trying to pass legislation for accountability measures. So we could, in New York City, pass a rule, be like no facial recognition. So that kind of zeroes out any idea that the, you know, um, you know, using that data like the NYPD in like trying to undermine like the carceral frame by using a piece of legislation to limit their ability. But there's also so many ways that they can undermine that um, because that was CCRB. CCRB was like a council proposed legislation that eventually got undermined to the point that it's really not really useful at all. So like those are, I think, the three different tools. But I think the budget's the biggest one because we can just explicitly say like, hey, we want a program that's, um, you know, that does right. X, Y, and Z. And then we can fund it. And speaking of that budget, what do you see as some of the juicy pieces of fat on that NYPD budget that could be uh, quickly chopped? And also, what are some examples of pilot programs that you would like to see funding for to to get underway and, and see if you can get some positive results from? Totally. So the police budget is it's huge. You know, there's the capital portion, but like the expense portion is like really the big part. So it's like it's six billion, or at least the one we just passed is six billion, but that doesn't include all the like fringe benefits that, you know, all the other because pretty much uh, the salary of one police officer is usually doubled when you when you count all the other things that includes to hiring that person. So in terms of what we can cut, I mean, there's like, you know, we have helicopters, we have all this military equipment that we can cut. There's also programs like the homeless outreach program, like that is not something we should be doing in terms of like having the, the presence of beat cops and like the actual headcount, you know, we keep hiring new classes. And, you know, I think there's a case that we don't need those cl- new classes to be hired, especially since crime has been going down. Uh, even in the context of the pandemic and the like the uptick, you know, I think that's more of a macroeconomic issue, you know, so you know, I think that those are like really specific things. I know the Community United for Police Reform did a report and they, they lined out $2.5 billion that were relatively low lifts that it could be cut from the budget. And I think a lot of that is really just like programs where we don't need a policing model to kind of solve, including especially school safety officers. Um, and I think in terms of the like, um, you know, piloting, like things that we can do, there was a really great um, pilot that just happened in Brownsville recently where they, I think for like a two, I think it was a four, two block radius um, they just essentially took the cops off the off that radius. They had um, stands and had essentially information for like if you were in public housing or you needed like work or like SPS. They essentially had city resources available and they had community folks in that community essentially trying to do community safety in person there. And there was like no police nine hundred one calls over the, the four day pilot. So I think that's like an example of like the kinds of things that we could try and put money to. Mm. Now one of the the groups that uh, is so deeply entrenched in its opposition to any change at the police department are, are the police unions. There's five police unions, the largest of which is the Police Benevolent Association, which represents about 24,000 uh, beat cops. Uh, 
what do you see as the source of the power of these police unions? Is it just their money and numbers or, or is there like a, it's almost like a sort of a social hegemony they wield over uh, the imagination of many people who, who see them as indispensable for their own personal safety? I mean, I think it's both really, you know, I think they do have like members and numbers and when they do mobilize, they are very, very effective at mobilizing. You know, I think um, we've seen like a, a small group of folks who, know how to like or organize on electoral gains or on specific issues are successful politically in New York city, you know, um, you know, because like the, you know, amount of votes it takes to like win an election and the amount of like sway to change something is not insurmountable. So they are a effective on that, but B they're also building off of this, like, you know, long, long narrative of like conservatism and that the idea of like, you know, to be safe, we need more police and like keep people in control. And it's all built off of like, you know, anti-black racism and, you know, white supremacy and like that. So they're tapping into something that's very powerful already. And I think that they're really utilizing that. So they're really making, they're the, they're the arbiters of the argument um, of all these, these structures, you know, for, for generations. And so they're like building, so whenever they, they need to like mobilize on something, they want to keep themselves in power. They can just tap that really easily using like fear and just connecting to conservatism writ large in New York City, which is, you know, an ideology that exists here, you know, we're a left city, but people believe in this stuff because of a lot of reasons. So I think they use both to their advantage. Mm. And, and if, if there is a, a socialist uh, caucus on city council next year, if if you and some of the others on the DSA for the city slate uh, win office uh, uh, in these elections, uh, how will you all function and how will you all maximize your effectiveness? Well, I mean, I think... This is an incredibly unique situation. This, there won't be um, a situation where there's going to be 36 open seats um, again, you know, and a mayor and a speaker. So essentially trying to create a very defined, clear message about what we want to change and how we're going to do it is, I think, critical. And I think that the, what the social slate can do is very much be the forefront of trying to create that narrative and make the case for uh, really broader changes to the things we want to do rather than like incrementalism that we've been doing before, um, which is like very safe because people don't want to spend political capital to like, you know, put themselves on, you know, uh, out there. And I think we have to kind of create the cover for everyone else. And I think that's also deciding like what are the priorities and how we talk about it. You know, um, I think people are trying to already pushing away from even using the words defund. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to be able to push because they've done polling that like 50% of New Yorkers, people in New York City support the idea of defunding the police, you know, and that's using that language, you know, so like I think that, um, you know, really the slate is going to need to be the vanguard in a lot of ways of trying to like talk about it just so that we can take up the, you know, the conversation and then be able to direct it Uh, because so much has changed so quickly that I think a lot of this is about like how we talk about these issues and how we frame them when we start to build coalitions around the work. Right. And and what is it like uh, running as as a slate with five other uh, candidates along with yourself? Uh, is the whole greater than the sum of the parts? Totally. I think so. I mean, we're, you know, people think that, you know, if you haven't been in a campaign and you, you look at them, you think, wow, they're so slick. They must have like known everything and they come in and it's super easy and they blow everything out of the water and it's done. You know, a lot of it's new for a lot of folks, you know, and even, you know, running for city council is very different than running for another office, you know, and People are trying to figure out what sticks, you know, like, how do we talk about ranked choice voting? Like, what's your thoughts on this language? How will, what about those ideas? Like, it's all, we're all trying to, like, our best to, like, 
support each other in trying to like make the arguments that we want to make. And that is that like, we're trying to push for something that is, is real and actually, you know, brings democracy to our economy, you know, and actually, you know, is, is democratic socialism, you know, and not just this, you know, let's placate a system that exploits people. Let's actually change that system. So we've been, you know, just really focused on trying to like get people help and advice and like pump people up if they had a tough day and like, trying to have this own communications. We have our own WhatsApp group. It's been great, uh, you know, and, you know, just kind of just um, keep doing what we're doing. And I think that, you know, having that infrastructure has been really helpful to me. And I, I've definitely brought it into my work. And I think it, I've done a better job as a result of it. And perhaps the, the, the best known member of the DSA for the city slate is Tiffany Caban, who's running for a seat in Astoria, Queens. And of course, she got a lot of people excited in 2019 when she uh, ran for district attorney in Queens and, and lost by 55 votes out of more than 90,000 votes. Uh, such a near miss there in 2019, and now she's running again. Uh, have uh, you and her had many conversations? How, um, you know, what, what kind of what what is what is she bringing to the table as somebody who's already well known uh, as a decarceral uh, advocate? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit. I mean, it's still it's kind of early. We're in kind of that sprint mode of questionnaires and just trying to make sure we all get the questionnaires done in time. And, you know, um, it's, it's it's very hectic. But, like, we've talked a little bit. But, like, I do um, how to talk about these things, but she's been talking about it for so long. And she, like, talked about it through an entire borough, you know. And um, that's, you know, I've, I've take, gotten a lot from Divinity just in terms of, like, talking about the whole carceral system, not just policing and just, like, trying to frame it around all the things that are part of it, not just the singular issue. So that's something that I've kind of brought, I would try to bring into my own messaging when I talk about it. Um, and I know every, you know, Tiffany and also other folks in the slate, you know, they ask me questions about the budget process because it's so opaque. I mean, council members don't even understand how the process works. <laughs> so uh, being an analyst on that experience, like they're like, yeah, well, this is actually how budget negotiating team works out. Like this is how delegation uh you know, negotiations uh, come down, you know, and this is what the speaker does and this is what the speaker doesn't do. And that's just because I was there, you know, yep. so I'm trying to like, you know, demystify this so that we can like, take, you know, bring power in and take it back. That's great. And, and speaking of budget processes, of course, the, the state of New York will be uh, uh, formulating a budget in the coming months that uh, should cu- culminate by the end of March and, and, how that process works out will go a long ways to determining whether New York City's uh, budget deficit will uh, grow or shrink and, and whether those uh, savings that you're envisioning from cutting the police department budget could actually be applied to, you know, some exciting new programs or whether it would just go back into the, you know, uh, the general fund to try to uh, you know, sort of bind up uh, the uh, a budget deficit. So can you talk a little bit about, about that and, and, um, the, the the really urgent need to increase taxes here in New York State on the wealthiest residents. Totally, this is like this is the you know the Act Three climax of you know the future. Like this is important right now, and everyone should really have an all hands on deck approach to this because this is a lot of this is a state issue. There's I think 14 bills that are being considered that are part of like the Tax to Risk Coalition. And most of that is like uh, taxing millionaires and ultra millionaires. I know that the credit air is also part of it because we didn't get that um, in the last uh, push. And I know there's like a, a stock transfer tax, which actually I think is a pretty large, um, you know, component and getting rid of 421A. And these are things that like, we need billions of dollars to fill the gap. And we just haven't taxed 
uh, you know, millionaires and the wealthy for generations, for decades. And this is, we're now reaping this reality of that. So I think it's this is incredibly important and we're not going to, like the city can't compensate for this not happening. Like there's just not enough money in the budget. There's not enough revenue that we can like build. We just have to borrow a lot. And there's a real uh, reluctance to borrow at a high level because we don't want to almost get bankrupt like the last time we did. Uh, the city almost became bankrupt. So, so this is important. Like we, like this, you know, we won't be able to, um, you know, create the services you want if we don't fill this gap with uh, this revenue. So I think, you know, what's done in the next upcoming cycle and the grassroots work of calling people and following up with people and making sure that we, you know, tax the rich and um, stop subsidies for real estate billionaires um, and get all these bills passed, I think is critical. This is super critical. Right. And and we have just a couple more minutes and I want to check in with you on a couple other topics. Uh, You're the son of two public school teachers. And I was wondering what your thoughts were are on keeping schools open as infection rates, uh, COVID infection rates continue to climb. And, and now we have a new, uh, more transmissible variant of the coronavirus also apparently spreading. Uh, your thoughts about how how the school should proceed? Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's tricky because I think a lot of times, especially in these like progressive districts, quote unquote, um, people are just kind of like, oh, all the candidates are the same. And I think you know, that some folks are on the like keep open school, keep the schools open no matter what, you know, bandwagon. And it's, it's, I personally, I think it's like somewhat racist in some of the, the way they're framing that these issues, but also it's incredibly dangerous. And I think that, you know, we've just seen a couple of schools get shut down in Park Slope um, because of, you know, outbreaks. I think, you know, there's no good situation where there's no win win. You know, keeping schools closed, keeping schools open are, are dangerous. But one, like could deeply impact people, particularly people who are mar- more marginalized by having them uh, catch the, you know, uh, you know, COVID. And, you know, we can't go with that option. I think what we need to do is um, protect teachers, protect the students, uh, keep the schools closed for a little bit longer, but then also like completely frame every type of resource that we're going to try and mitigate this, like this dilemma on most students of most needs. That's students with IEPs, that's um, you know, English language learners, you know, these are the folks that are already behind and going to be more behind. And if we just focus on trying to deal with these students, um, because a lot of, a lot of, you know, parents and families, they're going to do pods, they're going to get tutors, they're going to do other things. Like, you know, we just need to focus on who needs it most. And I think if, you know, we do that, we'll have a better system. All righty. Well, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. Uh, Brandon West, a city council candidate in district 39 and in South Brooklyn, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI 99.5 FM. Thank you so much.